0: So, today, I want to come back and pick up where I left off last time. So last time, I uh, left you with an argument called the cosmological argument. It's an old argument, Um, and sometimes the antiquity of that argument, the age of it, because it's really old, people think, well, it's not important to today because we like kind of new and um, modern things. But that argument, I would argue, is still as relevant today as it was during the time of Aquinas. As a matter of fact, even more so. Because we know more now about the workings of creation in the world um, than Aquinas did at the time. So I'd like to go back to Romans chapter 1. And I put this on the handout. So hopefully, same place that you can find the handout. um, It's up on the screen. But if you're watching through Zoom or you're here and you want to pull this up on... Uh, a device. You can see this too. It's on the, I think, the COVID page of the church website. So you can see this handout today. So I want to read briefly back to sort of a in from last time of Romans chapter one. This is verses 19 through 20. And I'll end this uh, lesson today with, with this um, section of this um, passage that Paul writes as well. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. By the way, that's all of us. This is not just the, for the Romans. Um, This is all of us today. Uh, It's plain to them. It's plain to us. Because, why? Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, can be clearly, manifestly perceived um, ever since the creation of the world. And there's that issue of creation again. um, In the things that have been made. In the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And I want to come back to that at the very end today and talk about that last phrase, that we are without excuse in that. So, in the things that have been made. So last time, as I mentioned, the cosmological argument is really an argument, yes, about first causes, but it's really an argument about being. It's called the ontological argument. Ontology is the study of being. And the reason I say that is because inevitably in that argument, it moves you. So I'm still in the introduction. It moves you to a self-existent, eternal something. Something that's uncaused in and of itself. And friends, that violates no, no laws of logic. Um, you, can't, you can have an uncaused cause. You can have that. What you can't have is an uncaused effect. That's absurd. And yet, I mentioned to you that's the leading argument today. So if that kind of that language is kind of floating around, let me, let me pull that language down a bit. The leading argument today is the box made itself. It's an uncaused effect. And by the laws of logic, that that's, makes no sense. It's illogical to say that. Right? So you looked at could the box make itself, is it eternal, those things. And one of the things I did not explain, at least if I kind of passed over this, and you may have thought of this, um, is this. So I, I just said to you that the leading argument today is that this box made itself ex nihilo. This great Latin phrase, out of nothing. Matter of fact, there's a there's a saying in science: ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes, because nothing can come. So the leading argument today is the box made itself, ex nihilo. And I said to you, that's illogical. That violates all forms of logic, and that undercuts science as well. And yet, if you were kind of really careful here, you would know that one of the very tenets of Christianity teaches that creation that God made by saying, right? He created ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke things into existence. So a natural question that would come this, which I've been posed with this question too, it's a really good question. It's like, well, aren't we talking about the same thing, that the universe made itself ex nihilo? God makes it, it made ex the universe ex nihilo out of nothing. Aren't we just kind of saying the same thing? And the answer is no, we're not saying the same thing. And there's not just a little something that's the difference between those two things. There's a large something that's the difference between those two things. And here's the large thing. That it's illogical to say that the box made itself. It had to be before it was. It had to be and not be at the same time, in the same relationship. That's a violation of the law of non-contradiction. However, it is radically different from that to That there is something that's eternal, self-existent, independent, that's outside the box, that made the box, that has the power to do that. And there's the difference between the two. Yes, Christianity holds ex nihilo, but not out of itself of itself, rather that there is a transcendent God who's also imminent. intimately involved in his creation, who has the power of being within himself. Friends, this box, if it's the universe, is dependent. That's the very central tenet of naturalism. It's dependent. And yet we know from all the things of studying of creation, of studying creation, that this box, because it is dependent and because it's here, it's dependent upon something. The very essence of its dependence means that it's dependent upon something. And friends, that something can't be a little nothing. It has to be an ultimate something. And that ultimate something has to be eternal, has to be here forever. And You say, well, why can't the God create himself? Well, that would make God a creature. And we just kind of get it going, right, until you, you get to this infinite regression. So that's a really important point we want to look at, right, and consider, We're not talking about the same thing in that. And yet, the study of science, which we'll get into today a little bit more, will elucidate some of those very things that Christianity is affirming, has affirmed um, in that. Well, I want to give you two additional arguments today, and I'll spend probably more time on one than on the other. I'm not saying that because one's more important than the other, but I don't want to... um, I don't want to take too much or spend too much time on the second argument because um, a lot of that argument will fold right over into next week with, um, with Kevin's argument or to look at the problem of evil, which we'll, we'll hopefully we'll, we'll get to. So two of the arguments I want to look at today um, when it comes to the existence of God. One is called the teleological argument, the teleological argument, um, and the other is called um, the moral argument you've probably heard of those. The teleological argument may be a big word that you haven't heard of before, okay? So I'll get to that in a second and we'll explain it. Uh, by the way, well, just in passing, teleological argument means an argument from design, from design, okay? Um, the, word, the Greek word telos means goal or purpose or design, Okay? goal or purpose. A teleological question is a purpose question, like why, okay? Um, which in modern science is a question we don't like to try to address because that has all kinds of implications. If you ask why, well, that's kind of a theological philosophical question. So you kind of see that it gets steered sometimes away from the why, okay? Now, I've not gotten to number two yet. This is number two. Roman numeral number two, which is describing the teleologic argument. Rather, I've put up here, it says Anthony Flew's garden parable, okay? So I want to use this parable. I didn't make this parable up. This is by a very famous atheist named Anthony Flew, okay? I would really like for you to remember his name, Anthony Flew, okay? Because I'm going to end today by wrapping this around to Anthony Flew again, okay? Some of you... Has anybody ever heard of Anthony Flew? Did you raise your hand? One. All right. Awesome. You get, I get to introduce you to, to this particular atheist. Anthony Flew died in 2010, 10 years ago. Uh, he was an ardent atheist. He was um, revered in a lot of ways. V- brilliant man. Um, and Anthony Flew... Devised this little parable uh, to describe atheism, okay. And he is attacking in this parable the teleological argument, the argument from design, okay. So here's the argument, or here's the parable. So it's a little mind, exp- little thought experiment. So pretend as though, think through this. There are two explorers, okay, and they're trudging through a very th- Dense jungle. It's got vines and everything. They're having to hack their way through. And eventually they come out into an opening. And in the middle of this dense jungle is a beautiful, manicured garden with flowers of all kinds, everything arranged in a particular way. Um, And there are two explorers, and the two explorers see this garden in the midst of all this chaos. And they come to two different conclusions about the garden. One of the explorers says, there must be a gardener. Like, if you have this kind of design and beauty, this kind of intention and purpose, telos, there has to be a gardener to this. The other explorer is a a skeptic, and he says, "Um, you know, okay, it, we're, in a, we're in a clearing, but that's a big leap to say there's a gardener here. Why couldn't this just happen naturally? We have the interworking of vines that seems to be present design. Why can't the fact that the garden um, just be here, and it just be here by chance? Non, non-intentional. And so they, both of the explorers see this and they come to two different conclusions. So they have a, an, an idea, and they say, okay, If there is a gardener, and the skeptic plays along with this, if there is a gardener, let's see if we can catch the gardener. Okay? So um, one of the first things they do is they put up a fence around the perimeter of the garden. They make the fence uh, electrified, make an electric fence, try to catch the gardener. They put out bloodhounds that roam around the perimeter of the garden. Uh, And they take turns on watch, to see if they can catch the gardener. Nights go by, days go by, more nights. And eventually, the two explorers come back together again, and they talk through what they've discovered or what they haven't discovered. And the person who's the believer that there's a gardener is still asserting his belief. And he says, well, the gardener, Must be elusive, like the bloodhounds can't pick him up. Um, He must be immaterial. He must be invisible. He doesn't give off a scent. Um, He has all these characteristics. There's the gardener's here because the garden is here, um, but he just doesn't have all these qualities that we have. And the skeptic says this. He says, well, what about our first assertion, that there is a gardener? And you're saying that this gardener is invisible, he's elusive, he is, doesn't give off any scent. And the skeptic says, well, what's the real difference between an elusive, invisible um, God or gardener and an imaginary gardener, like we just made it up? And ultimately, what's the real difference between an imaginary gardener and no gardener at all? Now, what Flew is getting at in that little thought experiment is this, that any kind of language about God is emotional at best and illusory probably at worst, right? There's no... There's no real difference between an imaginary God um, or gardener and no gardener at all. Okay? I had a student once a few years ago who was not a Christian, to say the least, and he was irritated at this question like, why doesn't, if God's so real, why doesn't he just show himself? Like, why doesn't he just come down and show himself? This is a Christian school, right? And I had to remind him actually, Christianity does teach that God did show himself in the incarnation, in Christ himself, right? He actually did show himself. But if we go back to the original assertion made by Anthony Flew and the two explorers, right? So they both come to two different conclusions. They see the garden. They have two different conclusions, right? And yet, what is missing in this parable is this. So think about this for a second. They both come to two different conclusions, and yet what's missing in the parable is this. This still, for Anthony Flew, he's not given an account for the garden, that there is a design. Friends, if there is even a smidgen of design, then it would tell us that there is possibly something behind that design, which leads us really well into the teleological argument. So once again, remember Anthony Flew; he's going to be really important to us. Okay, um, the teleological argument. So once again, how's this helpful um, for us? Well, once again, this idea of a smidgen of design will. Show us, at least point us toward the fact there must be, if there's design, there must be some sort of intention behind that design. You can't have unintentional intentionality. You can't have something that says it's intentional and you, you say it's unintentional. That's, that doesn't make any Those two things don't add up, they don't, they don't connect in this way. So the teleological argument is this. I've given you. Uh, on number two, sort of the construction of the argument. Now, once I say argument, I don't mean like we're yelling at one, one another, right? Here's the logical construction of this argument, and then we'll kind of break this down a little bit too, okay? So, the argument goes like this, that every complex design has a designer. Every complex design has a designer. Maybe, the friends, the best way to think about this is to think about your computer, right? To get your computer to do something, right? you have to do what? Well, in order to get it to do something, you have to give it some kind of code. You have to give it some kind of information. You have to have some kind of designer that stands behind that, right? So we'll come back to that example in a second. So every complex design has a designer. The universe, the box, presents evidence of complex design. So, notice what I'm going to do here. Last time, I went outside the box, okay? We looked at outside the box, how could we make an argument that undercuts naturalism? Today, I want to go inside the box, okay? So we're going to went really large last time, like universe large. Today, we get really, really tiny, okay, really specific. So we go inside the box, we get, my, get really small in this. So the second part of the argument says that the universe, the box, presents evidence of complex design. Three, therefore, logical conclusion, the universe had a designer. Now, that argument is based on not just logic, but it's based on the very premises of how science works itself, right? Um, It works by the fact of things, if you look at things in the remote past, And how do you try to figure out what happens in the remote past? Well, you look at things that are in action, causes that are in action today, to see how those things work in the past. And we know that today, you do not get to complex things without there's something behind it also being complex. Does that make sense? So, how does this work? Well, before we get into the kind of the nitty-gritty of this argument, it might be good to look at like, what constitutes design. When we say design, what do we mean by that? Right? So I'm really familiar with this word. My wife, Kelly, is an architect. Um, and so when we first got married, we would uh, go, watch, go see buildings, and we would go to lectures. It was really cool. Um, and we would have these conversations about design and function, the functionality of a building. right? Um, And design is is a particularly interesting concept and Word here. So there's actually some tests that we can run on what we mean by design. So let me run through these tests really quick, okay? Uh, One is this. One test to see if there's design is to determine whether that design is simple or is it complex. Is it simple or is it complex? Okay, I'll give you an example of this in a second. Uh, Number two, second test. Is it just, is the design just merely orderly? Does it just have order? Or does it convey information? And that's really important, right? So you can be out in the desert on a sand dune, and the winds hit the sand dunes just right, and it makes these beautiful little curves. Well, that's order. But that's not communicating any kind of information. Right? That would be different if you took a stick and went up to the sand dune and wrote, I love you in the sand, which we've all done this, right? I love you. Now, that communicates some kind of information, right? So one's orderly, one conveys information. We want to have a test to see if we can determine the difference. And then number three, does the design have purpose? And that's really important. Like, what does it do? So I've given you a couple of silly, I don't know if they're silly, but I've given you a couple of examples on this. So one of them um, is the um, 10 digits, right? Zero through nine, okay? Um, so let's say that guy um, is taking a trip, I give him a little piece of paper with my phone number on it, because he's gonna call me when he gets back to XNA, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna come and pick him up. And in turn, he gives me his phone number we're, we're not very technical. We write it down on a piece of paper, or right? we put it in our phone. Um, and so, when guy goes on his trip, he comes back. Guy, ah, I lost the piece of paper. Well, I know there's ten digits in Chris's phone number, and zero through nine. So I'll just call him up. So, guy. Puts in his phone 0-1-2-3-4-5-6-7-8-9. and he gets the This number is no longer connected. This number doesn't exist. And Guy says, Oh, well, I've got information, and it's complex, and it's orderly. It goes 0 through 9. But does it not only convey information, does it have a purpose to it? And Guy realizes that in his exuberance, so, I got 0 through 9 and the first number doesn't work, dialing zero through nine, he has to do some computations. So he's got 1 in 10 to the 10th power to try to figure this out. That's going to take a while to do all the combinations of numbers to get my number. Well, in the meantime, I see that it's time for a guy to be back, his flight. I haven't heard from him yet. And I remember that he's given me a piece of paper, and it has um, this particular combination of of orderly numbers, 479-871-2298. Now, that's actually not Guy's number, that's my phone number. So if you want to text me about these questions, you can do that. But I, I get my phone out and quickly dial that number. Guy answers. Oh, you're here. I go pick him up. OK? So it's a silly example, but I think a, a good one to kind of think through. What's the difference between information of design that's just orderly or one that's complex, one that gives information, and one that has a purpose to it? We can all kind of relate to that. Let me give you a second illustration before I push this a little bit further. Okay. Let's say that um, we are in a car, so this is example number two. Um, well, an example of order would be something like this. If I had a series of letters, so I went from numbers, which I'm not great at, to something I'm a bit more comfortable with, which are, which are letters, words, phrases. Okay. I think we can all see that the sequence of the letters Dx, 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 Dx are um, letters that are put together that exhibit um, order. There's no denying that, right? There's even a pattern to it. And yet, we would probably say, well, that does not convey any kind of information to me, any kind of information that's complex. So it's one thing to have DX, 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 DX. It's another thing if you have a bit of information that says to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the minds to suffer the slings and arrows of an outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of trouble and by opposing in them, to die, to sleep, to sleep. perchance. So there's a difference between Hamlet and DX, 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 DX. Right? In the soliloquy of Hamlet. Well... What if you did this? And this is right at the heart of the argument, of the teleological argument, and it's also an argument against naturalism. So let's think through this really carefully. Okay? What if Guy, I pick Guy up at the airport, and we're coming back into Fayetteville, okay? we took the long way around, and we're coming back in from the south side of Fable, and we're driving up, and we look up on Mount Sequoia, and we notice there's these white rocks. Okay? They've been these gigantic rocks, and they've been painted white, and they've been arranged in a certain way. Um, they're not arranged to form letters DX, 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 rather, the letters have been arranged to spell out the phrase, welcome to Fayetteville, okay? So, let's pretend as though Guy is the believer here, and he believes that we are entering Fayetteville. And I, I, I'm a skeptic, and I, I go along with that maybe a little bit. But I say to Guy, um... Well, I think that those letters that have been formed by these white rocks, that that's merely um, because of erosion and time and a lot of chance and the shifting of the tectonic plates under Fayetteville to hopefully get us to Mount Sequoia, that eventually all that happened uh, and it formed these letters, Welcome to Fayetteville, okay? so as a believer in this, Guy is saying that there's information. And this information is not just, is not simple, it's actually really complex. And that this information um, is specified complex information. It has a purpose to it. It tells us our location of where we're at. And Guy says that, as much as you can know, it, it could be possible that it's by chance, but highly unlikely, right, that you could get Um, by time and erosion and chance, an assembling of letters with stones that have been painted white to spell out, welcome to Fable." This sounds silly, I know, but bear with me for a second. Friends, we know that behind all that, for that to happen, that there has to be some kind of intelligence behind that. Right? Well, what if I'm the skeptic and I don't believe that? What if I say that um, I think that is by accident. I grant Guy the argument that it looks put together, it looks like it's been created, it looks like it's been designed, but it's just sheer chance and luck, and a lot of time and a lot of erosion, and some the frost settling and moving the rocks, it's just so happened to put it there. Okay? And I don't believe that. This is the view of the skeptic today. I don't believe that's so. And yet, I accept the premise that we are entering Fayetteville. Well, I've got a big problem on my hands. And I've got a really big problem on my hands if I'm a naturalist. Okay? Here's the problem. Hang with me for just a second on this, all right? Here's my problem if I'm a naturalist. I'm assuming that non-purposeful things are communicating to me a message of purpose. I'm assuming that non-purposeful events, the random assimilation of, of letters, is communicating to me a purposeful message. And there's a problem in that, because once again, unintentional, I can't have unintentional intentionality. Let me move this argument. By the way, this is not my argument. This is an argument made by a philosopher, Canadian philosopher, Richard Taylor in 1963. I just updated it to make it here, fit here in Fayetteville. But Richard Taylor makes a really interesting observation and he says this about naturalism. If you take those ideas of the rocks, and apply it to the fact of our sense organs, our brains. Naturalism says that our brains, our sense organs, were developed by sheer, random, unintentional uh, chance meetings des- uh, of, of things that are, are working in the universe. In other words, our, we have evolutionary brains that are here by no purpose, no design, totally unintentional. Our brains are. And yet, our brains tell us, our sense organs tell us and communicate to us what the real world is like out there. And Taylor says, just as it's as equally nonsensical for me as a skeptic to say that those letters were randomly made, welcome to Fayetteville, and yet I trust the message, welcome to Fayetteville, that we're really in Fayetteville, so too we have a problem because We have a brain that's, according to evolutionary biologists, that is non purposeful. It's very complex, but it's non purposeful. There's no reason for it. And yet we are to trust it. It's telling us true information. And those two things undercut one another. Let me put it to you another way if we can't trust our evolutionary brains way in the past, to be accurate about the world? Why in the world, no pun intended, would we be trustful of our evolutionary brains now to tell us true and right information about the world? Are you trekking with me? So just as nonsensical it is to drive into Fayetteville, look up and say, welcome to Fayetteville, and soon that's by erosion, time, chance, matter, and then to tell us complex information, that makes about as much sense, it makes no sense, but it makes as much sense for the naturalist to say, our brains are wired by evolutionary forces that are unguided and undirected. It's Darwinian language, right? Unguided and undirected. There's no purpose behind, there's no telos behind this. And yet our unguided and undirected brains, well, they give us right and true information about the world. We can trust it can't trust it in the past, but we can trust it now. That makes no sense whatsoever. And Taylor, in this analogy, I think, uh, pits a formidable argument against the idea of naturalism on the very basis of the way that we think about the world. It gets that kind of granular, it gets that kind of level. We're not just talking now about abstract things, uncaused causes, this pulls us right into the way that we actually think about information and that we view the world. And I dare say, if we're in our right minds, that we don't sit back and question whether that we are thinking about things rightly. I, I mentioned to you the very first lesson. Dr. Moeller said that we, we, we need the world needs thinking Christians thinking Christianly. The, the, the very notion here is the issue of thinking. That we, in made in God's image, are creatures who have the capacity to think about thinking, which is that little mind experiment I just had you do, to think about thinking. So are these organs, these sense organs that we have, are they just sheer randomness? And if they are, why should you trust them? And yet I doubt if you've ever stepped back to really perhaps consider that as well. You can trust, right? Uh, We can have a a reliable view of the world based on our perception of it. And if we say that they're non-purposeful, our brains are merely directed, unguided things, then naturalism has a big problem with you can't have both of those. You can't have both those things working together. And Taylor says this is the trap of naturalism, and it can't get out of the trap, right? Because at the very fundamental level is the level of thinking, the looking at information, okay? Pause here for a second. That's a big one to kind of think through. Questions over that? All right, let me give you one that perhaps we can think about. And I've got to be really careful here. Let me give you another example of an argument that I think, and it's actually not an argument, I'll give you a scientific fact. It's one of the the premier discoveries in late 20th century biology. Okay? So, as much as I love English, I teach English, I teach uh, College World Literature, where I work. When I was an undergrad, I got two undergraduate degrees, one in English, I was told, my brain was like, whole two different worlds. Right? English degree, and I got a biology degree. <laughs> okay. And my mom and dad was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I don't know either. But these things are super curious. I was super curious about these things. How the world works, right? Always been fascinated by this. How does the world work? One of the great discoveries that I got to read about um, is, and all of you have read this, all of you know this information, but it is a really fascinating discovery. I would argue it's one of the, it's one of the greatest discoveries, biological discoveries in the 20th century, late 20th century. Um, actually, it's more mid-20th century. But in 1953, two guys, actually, they based their work on the work of another scientist, and it was a lady, not another guy, and she hardly gets any credit for this, Rosalind Franklin, um, her work on how do we express, um, well, not just the fact how we express genes, they didn't even know about these things yet, but what they discovered in 1953, through a series of experiments, was they determined the structure of the DNA molecule. Deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. Okay, We, we hear about these things so much, but this is the first time they ever thought about this. So I've, I've um, I put two pictures up on the screen. You can see this, on, this is on the handout as well. So this is Watson and Crick. By the way, Crick's a really interesting guy. Uh, he died, um, I think, 2004. Um, Crick, before he, was, he got into biology, he was a physicist. He was working on a PhD in physics. And he had his PhD studies kind of halted. There was a timeout because of World War II. And in World War II, Crick was a code breaker. He was intimately knowledgeable about, he was a very smart guy, right, how to break code. The Germans, they were passing information by code, and this was primarily his job. Well, Watson and Crick, in 1953, figured out the structure of the DNA molecule. And they had a hard time at first figuring out what this thing looked like. And if you think about it, it's, it's, it's a double helix. It's made up of two strands, and it's kind of like a winding staircase. It's a, kind of a good way to picture that, right? It twists on itself, right? So I've got kind of the silly, couldn't find anything this morning that would work well, but if I've got two strands, and it kind of twists upon itself, right? Well, connecting these two strands along, along the spine of the two strands of the DNA molecule, the phosphates and sugar bases, are these four nucleotide bases, OK? So I'm trying not to geek out here. This is super fascinating to me. I know it may not be to you. But these four nucleotide bases, and we actually know the, um, what these four nucleotide bases are. anine, thionine, guanine, and cytosine, AGTC, or ATGC, right? And there's a particular way that these uh, four nucleotide bases connect. There's a particular order to them, okay? This is 1953. They didn't know how this stuff worked. We just now elucidated what the DNA molecule might actually look like, right? This twisted strand. Crick, brilliant, went further with this idea, and he developed And he had, at the time, no way to know this. And it took a series of experiments. It wasn't like one experiment to determine this. It took a series of experiments to do this. Uh, Crick developed what he called the sequence hypothesis. Sequence hypothesis. And Crick formulated in his hypothesis this, and he's absolutely, he was right. And he was, was, scary how close he was, given the fact of what he... What he didn't know at the time was totally, it was a hypothesis of his, and here's his hypothesis. He says that these four base pairs, A-T-G-C, these four base pairs, well they convey um, information, and they convey information that build these very important molecules in our body called proteins. So at one time, we thought that proteins were the kind of the basis of all. We thought that the proteins themselves were what carried the information. And Crick goes back one step further, and he says, know that these four nucleotide bases that run along the spine of the DNA molecule, they are embedded with information, digital code. Now, when I say code, I'm using that word specifically because you and I know that term in the midst of computers, right? Digital code. We know it in the computer world because of coding, we have binaries, zeros and ones, and a string of those can make up letters, right? This is well before that. And so Crick comes up with this idea that to build proteins, you have to have instruction to do that. And the instruction is stored on the DNA molecule in the form of a digital code. And that digital code is made up of base pairs. And just like letters in an alphabetic language, so too um, this information is, is transferred. Let me give it to you an, an example. I just said I like words. Have you ever played Scrabble? I've got a few people that play Scrabble. We'll play after church today. Scrabble. Um, this same idea is uh, comparable to the, to the board game of Scrabble, right? So I can take a lot of little squares with letters on them, and I can arrange them in certain ways that make zero sense. They can be orderly, but they don't convey any kind of information, and they're certainly not complex. But if you arrange the, the, the squares in a certain way, you can like, get the double word score, right? <laughs> They will relay information that's complex and that has a purpose to it. And when you're playing Scrabble, it makes no difference to you what the chemical composition of the little square plastic pieces are. I bet you've never thought about that, right? I never, you've, if you play Scrabble, you've never sat there and think, like, hmm, I wonder what kind of plastic, wonder what kind of molecules make up the plastic. Because it doesn't matter. So too with this. We're not concerned with what the chemical structure, although that's important, but it's not ultimately that's not the issue here. It's not the chemical component that makes up adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. The important thing here is the arrangement of those letters, the arrangement of those chemicals, because it is literally carrying out its, its, in, this information that causes everything in your body to every cell in your body contains this. So, if this room were a cell in your body, think about that for a second, if this room were a single cell in your body, and comparably this is a strand of DNA that's located in the nucleus of the cell, that's tightly woven, and on that section is an, a gene, and you want to get that gene expressed, it is a very complicated process. And so you have to have a molecule that gets built called messenger, messenger RNA that comes, we we'll actually call it an RNA polymerase, that comes along and attaches to the strand. It unzips it like Velcro. It makes a copy of it. It takes it, pulls it outside the nucleus of the cell. It has to go through a specific pathway to do that. It puts it up into the other regions of the cell. So if this is the, if this is the, um, the media team up there, that's the ribosome of the cell. It takes it up there, and it makes, it's called from transcription to translation, it translates it, it makes copies of it, and then to make a particular protein, it has to fold it. So remember I said that we thought that the basis of life, all the information was stored in protein? Well, that's not true, right? It's stored in the DNA. And we know that because we used to think that that proteins were this very linear, very structured thing, And then we figured out that proteins have all these weird shapes to them. Well, that gets made in the cell. So when you have to digest something in your stomach or your brain has cells that have to reproduce or have to replicate itself or to produce something, all this is going on in the cell. And after it gets made, it gets put out into the cytoplasm of the cell and gets released, and then it functions in your body. This is going on constantly. I think about this, if you came upon, if you were back to the jungle thing, not just the garden, what if you found in the garden a machine? A machine that had complex information stored inside of it. It's a round ball. It's metal. Not just the fact the garden is there, but you've got a round ball made of metal, and you open it up, and you realize there are complex machinery that's happening inside of it, and the thing can reproduce itself. Would you naturally assume that that was non-purposeful? I don't think so. You would think that that was designed by purpose. A matter of fact, I use the word design. It has a purpose to it. And yet, that's exactly what's going on in the cell. The closest thing, and if I give you another analogy to this, is the closest thing that we have, there's a, there's a company, Boeing, there's a company in Seattle, Washington, the state of Seattle, um, the, the Boeing company makes the big airplanes, and they have, a, they have a program called a CAD-CAM system, C-A-D-C-A-M, CAD-CAM. So I said my wife's an architect, she uses CAD design, computer-assisted design, and the M stands for manufacturing, computer-assisted design. That technology that we see Boeing use is the same kind of technology that we see going on in the cell. So Boeing, they have an engineer that sits down behind a computer using CAD CAM, and he'll write a program that that computer will um, recognize in that system of CAD. It will go down a wire; gets translated down a wire into the manufacturing part of their company, and that information, that digital information, gets codified literally when it gets translated into the language that the, that a robot, a robotic arm, can use to put rivets onto the wing of an airplane. That's the same kind of system that we see going on inside the cell right now, okay? It's the same kind of process. Even the most minute, simple forms of life, bacteria, this complex machinery is getting carried out, okay? Well, what's the big deal? So I'll stop here, geeking out on this for a second. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this, that the cell's information system is like a processing system, right? And yes, it's very similar to CAD-CAM technology that Boeing uses. But there's one difference between what Boeing does with CAD-CAM and what the cell does in your body and constantly. For you to survive, it's constantly doing this. There's one big difference. And the big difference is that cell's information, its processing system, not only produces the machinery, the protein machinery within your body for you to live, but it reproduces itself. So here's the big question. (laughs) By the way, this is called the mystery of the DNA molecule, and it is quite mysterious if you're looking at this from a naturalistic perspective. By the way, it's not a mystery. The mystery is not the structure of the DNA. Watson and Crick elucidated that structure in 1953. We know what it looks like. It's not even the mystery of where that information is stored. We know where it's stored. It's stored on the spine of the DNA molecule. It's not even a mystery about what the information does. We know what it does. It produces all the machinery, the protein parts, to make your body function. We know what it does. Guess what the big mystery is with the DNA? You guess? Where did this information, complex digital code, a manuscript, an instruction booklet, where did that come from? And you can't get the answer to that question by simply appealing to time and erosion. We have complex, specified complex information that has purpose and that gives meaning. And you have to have, it's kind of this chicken and egg thing, right? You have to have DNA to make the protein. You have to have protein to make the DNA. Which came first? And this is the head-scratcher in modern science today. It's the the head-scratcher of information. Where does this information come from? So that's a pretty important question, right? Because we know, standing back behind it all, that information, that kind of complex information, always has to have a designer behind it. Uh, Bill Gates said this. He said, Um, that DNA, Now, I'm not appealing to Bill Gates as my final authority, but it is an interesting quote that he makes, okay? Bill Gates said this about DNA. He said, DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than anything that we've ever devised. So, friends, how do you build software? How do they do it at Microsoft? Well, once again, it's not by wind and erosion. You build it by programmers you build it by an intelligence. And once again, wherever we find complex, purposeful information, I'm not talking about random, I'm not even talking about orderly, I'm talking about complex, specified information, we always, always, always assume and can trace it back to a mind and to an intelligence, not a material process. This is the great discovery we have in the mid-20th century, and it's fascinating. By the way, one of the five horsemen, Richard Dawkins, said that he made a counterpoint to the design argument. Richard Dawkins, once again, he wrote The God Delusion. He said, quote, but who designed the designer? For him, everything's perceived design. It seems like it's design, but it's really not. And Dawkins asked this question, which is actually a philosophical question, right? Who designed, if there's a designer, then who designed the designer? And that's an easy question that you can answer, right? And the question is no one designed the designer. You can have an uncaused cause, but you can have, according to what, Daw- to what Dawkins holds to, an uncaused effect. So if you, have, you can have an uncaused cause. Friends, if, once again, if the box is dependent and it's derived something that's dependent, so it has to be dependent upon something. It's either dependent upon himself, coming out of nothing, or it's dependent upon something that's independent, that's extremely intelligent, that's extremely powerful, all-powerful, all-intelligence. And it has other characteristics, too. These words by Paul that I started with are very telling the more that we find out about the known world not just outside the box, in the box, inside you. This is one of the great discoveries that we see. Um, really quick, number two. So this is the teleological argument. And I've just given you one example. I think the DNA molecule is fascinating, um, to say the least. It fits that test very easily. Uh, number, number three is this. This is the moral argument. Okay. And the moral argument also has three parts. I don't know just two's up here, but maybe the other part will be listed. The moral argument runs like this: <clears throat> that every moral law has a moral lawgiver. Number two, that there is a moral, a universal moral law. So all cultures hold the fact that murder is bad. I know there's pockets of cultures that may waffle on this, but universally, uh, murder, rape, pillaging is a bad thing. Turn on your TV, watch the news, and you'll see this. I mean, this past week or so, there was a major event that happened. The FBI arrested this lady who was the girlfriend-slash-confidant of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. They did awful, evil things, and no one's denying that they were evil. Like, you can go to the most secular person and say, was this evil, what they did to these young girls? And they're like, yes, this was evil. And that poses a question, what's the basis of that, right? So there is a universal moral law that's in all of us. And number three, therefore, there must be a universal moral lawgiver. I like the way Ravi Zacharias reframes this. Ravi is a very known, was a very known uh, ap- Christian apologist who actually died recently. If you've never experienced Ravi, you should go online and watch some of his videos. So I totally stole this from Ravi. But here's how Ravi was asked this once by um, someone in this. He would take questions, and someone who's an atheist, a naturalist, him this question about the problem, which is what Kevin's going to pick up next week, the problem of evil. And Ravi said this. He says, okay, you're going to assert that there's evil. What Jeffrey Epstein did and his girlfriend was horrific. I know we run to Hitler and the Holocaust that's equally horrific, but sometimes, 8 million people being murdered is a hard number to get your mind around. Pulling that down into contemporary culture um, maybe be an easier way to think about this. And he says, Ravi says this, he says, number one, he said, when one asserts that there's such a thing as evil, if you say there's a problem of evil, then you must assume that there's something that's good. Number two, when you assume such a thing as good, you must assume that there is an objective moral law to distinguish between what's good and what's evil. If you don't, if you say you deny that, then evil and good are just preferences. It will always fall back into that. It's just your preference. So if my preference is to pick a gun up and shoot Kevin, that's my preference, so that's good. Well, you wouldn't think that, and most certainly Kevin would not think that, right? So if you're saying there's a good and an evil, you're having a standard to judge that, and it's universal. Number three, Ravi says that when you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral lawgiver, which is the source of the moral law. So I'll run through that argument really quick. Ravi says this, when one asserts that there's such a thing as evil, then you are assuming there's such a thing as good. And when you assume good, you're assuming an objective moral law to make a distinction between good and evil. And when you assume a moral law, you always assume a moral lawgiver. Friends, just the same way with information, if it's complex and specified, you always assume a designer. Same argument. If you are saying something is bad, and evil, then you are assuming that there's the antithesis to it as well. I mentioned to you, I had a student who graduated, he didn't graduate, but I had him for a few years up through the 11th grade, who was raised in a Christian school, Christian home, went to church every Sunday. He was an ardent atheist and naturalist. And he was, this kid was brilliant, loved this kid, and he would would pin you to the wall. I've seen him do it with some people, some other instructors. Um, and yet this student had this, I mentioned, this really strong sense of justice. And I was always pressing him on that, that point. Like, where did that idea of justice come from? Because by assuming justice, you're assuming that something is evil and bad. And if you're assuming that, aren't you also having a standard to judge that evil by? So I have to say this before we leave this argument. Um... Naturalism today, one of the chief proponents of atheism and naturalism is a guy by the name of Sam Harris, who is a staunch atheist. And he's arguing today that we can give a scientific explanation for the moral law. And he says it's really easy. It's just, the, it's just your brain state. If it's, you're in a happy brain state, then that's essentially your moral law. But even that argument's a bit ridiculous, because it still goes back to your preferential treatment, right? It's back to personal preference. And second of all, how do you measure brain state, well-being? I mean, how do you ultimately quantify that? So this is where even they're going to give a counterargument to that, right? So naturalism, once again, before I leave this argument, because I don't want to take too much of it because I want to let Kevin kind of handle this one as well. But I will go back to this same art this argument connects back with the with that example of um, looking up on the side of Mount Sequoia and saying, welcome to Fayetteville. And I said, as a naturalist, you can't have it both ways. You can't say your brain's by your, your sense organs is by sheer chance and purpose, and then say that your brain's telling you reliable information that doesn't work. Same thing here. You can't have it both ways. You can't say something is evil, and then they're saying there's no such thing as evil and good. The only way that you kind of solve that if you're a naturalist is that it becomes preferential, and that's a deadly place. As a matter of fact, we've seen where that idea has been carried out in the 20th century. When morals become relative and truth becomes relative, um, it's, it's a bloody idea. And we've seen more people die from that idea than any other. It's pretty scary in that. Last thing, and we'll be done. I mentioned to you that um, I can talk all day on this, right? But eventually, if you're thinking really carefully about this, how do we get from Aristotle's God, the God of philosophy? Because I've talked a lot about an uncaused cause, an unmoved mover, an intelligent designer. But those are really abstract things. Like, how do you get from that to the God of the Scriptures? Like, what's the, what's the transition? And Sam's going to help us in that by looking at the reliability of the Scriptures. And Kevin's going to help us with that by looking at the miracle of the resurrection. By the way, if, if, if there is a God, and I've made an argument that there is, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, then not only are miracles poss- uh, plausible, but they're actually possible. So uh, you don't have to work from that miracle backward. You work from the fact that God exists forward in that. It makes it pretty easy. So here's my summation argument, and then I'm going to make a case for why- how do we move from God of philosophy to God of the Bible, the Scriptures. And I've listed it this way. So here's my overview of the last four weeks, that there is a beginner. And that beginner cannot have a cause of himself. He's self-existent. He's not dependent upon anything. That was my cosmological argument. Um, and that this, this being is outside of time and space. Science tells us that everything, even time and space itself, had a beginning. And yet we know that we're here. Something had to be eternal and outside of time and space. That, that self-existent, Eternal something has to have great power, ultimate power, the power of being. The fact that you have being and you're here bespeaks, and you're dependent, bespeaks the fact there's something that's external, that's transcendent, that has ultimate power of being and he can never not be. God can't exist and not exist. He's eternal. Number four, that he's highly creative. And that fits right over into the design argument as well. The fact that you see this beautiful creation, this is, we say this in the psalmist, the psalmist says this, that the heavens declare, speaks the glory of God. Right? Paul goes back into the, the things that have been made that we see. So we have a beginner, we have a designer who cares about his creation. God is not just transcendent as the deists would hold. He's eminent. He's involved in his creation. He's intimately involved in his creation. So Christianity has always held that, those two things. Um, that he's supremely intelligent, the intelligence behind it all. To have a program, you have to have a mind, and that mind is all-encompassing. Number, uh, you have to have a beginner, designer, you have a moral lawgiver. Number seven, that must have absolute authority. He's the standard. And he's the standard because he ultimately is this transcendent standard of truth. This is part and parcel of his character. All truth, remember Augustine, all truth is God's truth. All truth goes back to him. That was that transcendental argument that I made. Does this begin to sound familiar to you? We've got, we've got a self-existent eternal something that didn't have a beginning. That's the standard of all laws and morals. It's the standard of truth. Supremely intelligent. And yet, how do we get from that description to the God of the Bible? Here's how we do it. Because the God of philosophy is abstract. He's kind of this ethereal thing that floats. You hear people, I've heard people say this, right? The universe will help you if you do the right thing. Well, the universe is not gonna help you because the universe can't help you. Impersonal forces don't exhibit personality because they can't, they're impersonal. Space dust doesn't help you. But what if we have a design? And I've hopefully shown you that we do have design, but in the things that have been made. And design always speaks intention. You can't have unintentional intentionality. And intention always bespeaks purpose. And purpose always bespeaks intelligence, those assembling of welcome to fable. You don't have to have intelligence to do that. And intelligence is always connected to personality. And personality is always connected to a person. And a person, friends, is always connected to the personal. And with that argument, we land right onto the pages of sacred scripture. A personal God. So I'll leave you with this, two things. One, Paul says that in the creation, this is the God exhibits his power and the things that have been made. And in verse 20 of Romans 1, verse 20 says, Paul says, so they are without excuse. Friends, in our culture today, we love talking about the universe and impersonal forces. We do not like, in general, to talk about a personal God. And the reason is, is because a personal God will hold us personally accountable. A personal God will always hold us personally accountable. He has supreme authority. And because of that, and because he's eminent, he's in the world, he knows us intimately as well. This is that movement in the argument from an abstract to a personal. This is the incarnation. Jesus is not an abstraction. He comes in the flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, he comes in the flesh. Ultimately, if you trace out that, that argument that that John's making in the prologue of John, the Gospel of John. He goes eternity past, and he moves to the present, and he moves to a person. This would have been a misnomer for the Greeks. Everything's an abstraction. Last thing, I mentioned to you Anthony Flew. I said, remember that name. ardent Atheist, he gave us the, the garden parable. He died in 2010. In 2004, Anthony Flew changed his mind. And this was a bombshell in the intellectual world. They didn't know what to do with this. And he gave a reason. He wrote a book. You can actually find the the PDF of this book online. You ought to go and read it. It's a fascinating read. But he wrote a book in 2007. Um, And the, um, the title of the book is, There is a God, subtitle, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Anthony Flew moved from his ardent atheism, he was the poster child of the atheist of the 20th century, and he moves to theism. Now, he does not convert to Christianity. His version of God is more of the deistic form of God, that God is transcendent, he made everything but he's not actively involved. So he never converted to Christianity, but he did convert to theism. Why did he do that? Well, if you read his book, he outlines this really clearly. And basically it's this. The arguments that I've given you today, at least in part, like the DNA and all these other things, bespeak of an intelligence that's well beyond any capacity that we have. And Anthony Flew was brilliant, and he was smart enough to know that if you have a smidgen of design and information, that did not arise by itself. It came from something. And Anthony Flew changed his mind. It's fascinating. Friends, next week, we've looked at this argument, the existence of God, His characteristics, who He is, and how we can move that argument to look at the fact that it's not an abstract God, but a God that's actually the characteristics is exactly aligned with the God of the scriptures. And yet Christianity is faced with, sometimes referred to as the Achilles heel question of Christianity, the Achilles heel problem. And the Achilles heel problem is this, what about the problem of evil? If God is perfect, why is his handiwork seemingly so imperfect? Somehow, sometimes that's how that is framed. God's perfect, why is his handiwork so imperfect? Why do really bad things happen? And why would God allow those things to happen? That's a formidable question. And as, as Kevin and I were talking about, that's not just an intellectual question, that's an emotional question. That's a pastoral question. And that's one of the things we want to look at and pick up next week. Let me pray really quick, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Uh, email me, um, or you can text me, now that you have my phone number. Um, text me a question, be happy to, to address that this week. I know I haven't given a lot of time to that. Lord, thank you so much for the day. I pray, God, for Trey today as he preaches your word. I pray that you give him a clarity of thought and mind, God, that you would help him to help us see the glories and riches of Christ. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.